This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer uh, for the purpose of using 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Scripture says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In order to study the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we need to be in fellowship with Him. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can avail yourself of that option if necessary. Let's uh, bow our heads together and for a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this privilege and opportunity to study your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it is in the light of your word that we see light. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study today, that that we might be challenged and encouraged by your word. As we fellowship around the word, we might also be mindful that, that we live in a nation where we have tremendous freedom to study your word and to live the Christian life. We pray that you would continue to protect this nation, uh, that uh, at this time of war against terrorism and potential war against Iraq, that you would give our leaders wisdom, that you would guide and direct them. And for those who are in this congregation or the extended congregation, that you would uh, watch over them as they serve in the military and as they serve in the combat zone, we pray that you would particularly protect them from any harm. Father, we pray for their families, that you would comfort them with your word and that they might uh, be a strength and witness to your faithfulness and to your grace during this time. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things that we study today, that we might have a greater understanding of the truth of your word and our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One other announcement I forgot to mention. This last Wednesday night, we concluded our series on salvation. So this Wednesday night, we are going to begin a new and ambitious study, one that I almost look at with a little bit of fear and trembling. Who knows how long it will take us to complete this study. On Wednesday night, we're going to begin a study of Genesis. It may take me a year to get out of the first three chapters. But we are going to look at a tremendous number of things. And, and the thing that is always a bit daunting is the first 11 chapters, which provide the foundation for just about everything, uh, <clears throat> are so much debated and so much critical information is there that uh, I'm going to try a new approach to teaching Genesis, one that goes back and forth between uh, sort of what we'd call synthesis and analysis. I'm going to try to teach sections where we cover the entire section in a summary fashion and then come in and teach the details. And I want to do it that way because sometimes when, when, and I know this is true as a pastor, when I was a student in seminary, I would want to listen to somebody's series on, pick a book, any book, and there might be 80, 90, 100, 200, 300 tapes on that book. And if you're in seminary or if you're a student in Bible college or if you're a pastor teaching, you may not be able to teach at that level. If you are teaching in our prep school and you're going to teach Genesis, 
you may not be able to uh, go through 300 hours just to get ready to teach 12 Sunday school classes or 12 prep school classes. So what I want to do is teach it at two or three different levels, whereas uh, we can label one sort of summary, and over the course of the time that it takes to teach this, we may have as many as 40 or 50 summary tapes. Well, you could listen to those summary tapes as a series in and of itself and cover the entire book of Genesis. And that way, if you are in a in a particular kind of situation where you need more of an overview and less detail, you can do that. And then we'll break out numerous sub-series. We'll have sub-series on creation and evolution, sub-series on sin and salvation, sub-series on um, the fall, sub-series on Abraham and covenants and different things like that. So I'm still trying to figure out, maybe with some help from Bryce, we can figure out how we're going to label these things so that we can set up a, a, a different structure. And I also want to begin, and this is a preview of coming attraction, sort of a new teaching style I'm going to, I'm playing with, with this summary approach. I want to do, do the same thing in a few, probably in about three or four months. And this second hour on Sunday morning, we will conclude Third John. Right now we're halfway through Second John. We'll probably conclude Third John in another three or four months. And then we're going to start a study on Revelation. So <laughs> we're going to be cranking through two long, detailed books. And I want to approach both of them the same way. And one thing I'm going to do on both of those books is start off the first hour where we're going to cover all of, like this Wednesday night, we'll cover the entire book of Genesis Wednesday night. So that will give you an overview. And the problem that I find is that so few people sit down and read through their Bibles that a lot of this information is is just beyond them. So uh, they haven't ever read through the whole book of Genesis from chapter 1 through chapter uh, 50. And they need to go back and do that again. But I'll cover the whole, all of the 50 chapters this week. Then we'll come back in the next week and we'll look at the first section and do an in-depth study of that first section. And then, probably by the third or fourth week, we'll actually start with Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 and get into creation and evolution. So that's the strategy. We'll see how it works. It's a new experiment and approach to teaching. But then I'll do the same thing when we get to Revelation. I'll cover Revelation in an hour. Now, that's not going to be hard to do because when I go out on the road sometimes and I teach prophecy conferences, I frequently conclude the last night with a run through Revelation and cover all 21 chapters or 22 chapters or 21 chapters in about an hour. And that was a lot of fun in Kiev when I did that because I was covering it. I took an hour and 15 minutes, and that's with a translator. So we were really moving through Revelation. But we did it. Open your Bibles this morning to Second John. Second John. We are in Second John. Second John, chapter uh, verse seven. But I want to pick up some context. So let's just go back a couple of verses to verse five and pick up the structure here. Let's go to verse 4. That's where you start getting into the main body of the epistle. John writes, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. Corrected translation, walking by means of truth. The truth is defined in John's gospel. When Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Truth is a foundational concept in John's writings. Truth is not what we might call small t, lowercase t, truth. Truth that you might think of in terms of geographical truth or biological truth or mathematical truth. But this is capital T, truth. Absolute truth is it is grounded in the thinking of God and as is expressed through revelation in the Word of God. 
I have found your children, that is the members of your church. He's writing to a church outside of Ephesus, meeting in the home of a particular, probably a particular lady in this area. And so he addresses her and the whole church under this terminology, the elect lady, that is this local church, and her children, that is the members of the church. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children, that is, those in your congregation, walking by means of truth. They are applying the Word of God in their life. It's not just a matter of academic knowledge. It's not just a matter of getting their notebooks crammed full of various doctrines. Not merely a matter of being able to repeat uh, what the pastor has said and regurgitate what they've heard in class, but they have understood it. It's become epinosis doctrine in the soul so that there is actual application in the life. Your children are walking by means of truth. Truth is the means of living the Christian life. There are two means, or another term would be inst- instruments, by which... We live the Christian life. The first is the Word of God, the truth of God's Word. And the second is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God always works in conjunction with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God always works through the Word of God. They do not operate independent of one another. Scripture says that we are to walk by means of the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. Walk by means of the Spirit. We are also, we are to walk by means of the truth. Second John verse 4. So we walk by means of truth, and we walk by means of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit illuminates our thinking to understand the Word, to apply the Word, so that He can use it in our lives to produce spiritual growth and spiritual fruit. John rejoices that he found her children walking by means of truth as we received commandment from the Father. Now this becomes the next key word, is the word commandment. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that is, the beginning of the church age, from the time Jesus articulated this in John chapter 13, uh, verse 35, that we love one another. And we have spent the last two lessons looking at this command, this new mandate, that Jesus gave in the upper room to his disciples to love one another as I, that is Jesus Christ, as I have loved you. So this is a new commandment. It differs and intensifies the Old Testament commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. First, because the object of love is no longer your neighbor, that is, believer or unbeliever, but it is directed specifically to believers. This is not just impersonal love for all mankind, but this is specifically impersonal love toward other believers. Love one another as I have loved you. In the Old Testament, the mandate was to love your neighbor as yourself, Now you have a higher standard as I have loved you. And this is exemplified on the cross when Jesus Christ died as our substitute. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is at the cross when Jesus Christ took upon himself the penalty for every single sin in human history. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, God the Father took every single sin, all of the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, and he judicially imputed those to Jesus Christ on the cross. During those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m., Jesus Christ paid the judicial penalty for those sins. Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. The purpose was now that the sins have been paid for, sin is no longer the issue. Every single human being is born condemned 
in spiritual death. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We are born under the penalty of sin, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. So that under spiritual death, we needed a Savior who would die as our substitute. We needed a Savior who could pay that penalty. Mankind could not save it, save himself. So once sin is paid for, then man is no longer under under the under the bondage to pay that penalty himself. He can't pay it himself, but that's not enough to save him, because you ha- two things have to take place. First of all, the sin has to be paid for, and secondly. Man has to have perfect righteousness. God is absolute perfection, and God's perfect righteousness cannot have fellowship with anything less than perfect righteousness. Therefore, half the problem is solved at the cross when Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. The other half has to do with the application of that payment to each individual, and that occurs when they put their faith alone in Christ alone. At the instant that you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, then the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. When you trusted Christ, God the Father instantly imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ to you. When his righteousness saw this imputed righteousness, he declared you to be just or justified. This is what is meant by the theological phrase, justification by faith alone. At that instant, you are saved as a result of justification. God the Father imputes to you a new life, a new human spirit. That is called regeneration. And you are imputed eternal life, his very own life, so that you can live eternally. Now, this is the foundation now of a new spiritual life that is to be characterized by a unique ethic that we love one another. Jesus said to his disciples, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. He didn't say by this all men will know that you are believers. He didn't say by this all men will know you're a Christian. He said by this all men will know that you are my disciples. That is, believers who are learning the word of God, growing and maturing in their spiritual life. By this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Then he defines that love in two different places. This is crucial to understand love. As I've said again and again, we can't just start with an abstract concept of love. We can't start by thinking that our experience as adolescents somehow, when we first fell in love with somebody, that's what love is, that it's emotion, it's sentiment, it's how you feel. If we look at 1 John 3.16 we read, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So the application of understanding what occurred at salvation is love for other believers, impersonal love for other believers. So we start off by understanding what took place at the cross, and then and only then can we come to understand what love is. If this is not the core meaning of that you have when you use the word love, then you don't understand love. Love includes uh, an object that is not worthy, not deserving of its love. It's a love that's based on the character of the one who loves, not on the character or the uh, or the the character or the attractiveness of the one who is loved. So in 1 John 3.16, we learn that love begins at the cross. And then in 2 John 6, John says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So it starts at the cross with salvation and then extends through the spiritual life by walking according to the commandments of Scripture, the mandates. Now this includes two categories. This includes positive commandments, such as love one another, something to do. It includes negative commands or prohibitions, things to avoid. This is love that we walk, that is, live according to his commandments. So walking in truth is 
then parallel to walking according to his commandments. And this, he says, is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. That is, walk, now the it refers to love. We are to walk by means of love and walk by means of truth. And these two terms summarize all of the Christian way of life. We could say that all of these terms summarize summarize the what we call the ten problem-solving devices. Let's go back and look at at these in terms of these two categories, truth and love. At the very beginning, we are focusing on learning doctrine, on learning certain truths. So the first truth we learn is confession of sin, that we can't have fellowship with God unless we are in fellowship with Him. And whenever we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. So at the instant we sin, we're out of fellowship. So we have a grace provision. We don't have to impress God with our sincerity. We don't have to impress God with the fact that we won't ever do it again. We don't have to impress God with... with um, our good intentions, all we have to do is admit or acknowledge to him the sin we committed, 1 John 1, 9. As a result of that, we are filled by means of God the Holy Spirit, and we are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. What are we filled with? We are filled with doctrine. Ephesians 5.18 says we are be, to be filled by means of the Spirit, And the parallel passage is Colossians 3.16, which says that we are to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. So this focuses on the content, the content basis for the spiritual life, which is doctrine revealed in the word of God. As a result of that, we learn some principles about what God has done. We learn about some of his promises, and we begin to depend on those promises and to claim those promises on our day-to-day experience. And that is what we call the faith rest drill. The object of faith is always a proposition. This is just basic uh, logic 101 that uh, a proposition is a statement that can be verified or falsified, and we believe any proposition of Scripture that God will uh, take care of our needs. For example, we're to be anxious for nothing, but God will uh, take care of everything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we take a promise like that, and we are tempted to worry, to be concerned, to to uh, push the panic button, and instead we rely upon God's promise and we relax. That's the faith rest drill. Then we begin to understand that everything is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent upon what we do or what we haven't done. It's dependent upon God's grace and His free grace provision. So we begin to orient our thinking to grace, and we call that grace orientation. Grace orientation is linked with the next step, which is doctrinal orientation. Doctrine is learning the truths of God's Word, and we orient our thinking to what He has revealed in His Word. So all of this is related to truth. Then we come to the next step. The next step we begin to understand that we have an eternal destiny, that 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 eternal destiny involves an eternal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we call that our personal sense of eternal destiny. It focuses on that eternal relationship, ruling and reigning with Christ in the future. This then goes to the next stage, which is personal love for God. As we learn about His promises and His provisions, as we learn more about His grace, more about doctrine, more about what He has in store for us in the future, our love for God the Father increases. As this love increases, then it provides the motivation for further growth and further obedience. This then has all of this truth that has gone before builds to develop in us the motivation and the capacity to fulfill the commandment for impersonal love for all mankind and impersonal love for all believers. Then we come to the next area of love, which is our focus on Jesus Christ, our occupation with Christ, so that these three problem-solving devices, personal love for God, the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and especially for believers, and occupation with Christ, become the essence of this, this 
stage of the spiritual life where we are growing from spiritual adolescence to spiritual maturity. And the result of all of this is that we experience the uh, joy that Jesus Christ had, my, he, where he promised in John 15, my joy I give to you, where we have that uh, peace, tranquility, contentment that comes from having a soul that is completely reliant upon God's provision and got oriented to God's plan. So we see how all of this fits together. We are to walk according to truth, I walk by means of truth, and walk by means of love. We live our spiritual life on the basis of truth and on the basis of love. Now, we come to our verse this morning, verse 7. Verse 7 begins in the New King James Version. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now we have to, to, uh, take a look at a couple of grammatical things in relationship to understanding this verse. First of all, this verse does not begin with a word that should be translated by the English word for. I'm not even sure the New American Standard translates it that way. The first word in the Greek is the Greek word hati. This is a causal use of hati and should be translated because. So the very first word of verse 7 should be because. Now whenever you see a word like this, because, then we ought to, we, we notice that the author is giving us a reason for something. He's giving us a reason for the command in verse 6 that we should walk by means of love. Why? Because. Notice the contrast here is over here we have a command to walk in truth, walk by means of truth, and walk by means of love. Why should we do this? Because there are deceivers. Notice there is a direct contrast between deception and the concepts of truth and love as articulated in verses 4 through 6. So verse 7 through 11 gives us the core purpose for this epistle. He is warning the congregation not to be taken in by certain teachers who are going throughout Asia Minor at this time, claiming to have association with the apostles, and they very well could have. They could have been in Jerusalem at an earlier date. They were, in many cases, they were believers, but now they have exchanged the truth of the word for a lie and they are distorting the teaching about who Jesus Christ is. So John warns them, you are to walk by means of truth and love because there are many deceivers who have gone out into the world. These deceivers are those who are changing the doctrine and the meaning of who Jesus Christ is. And this he explains... And the next phrase, that these are those who do not admit. And here we have our word homologeo, the same word we have in 1 John 1, 9, to confess your sins. It means to admit or to acknowledge something as true. It says these are those who do not acknowledge or admit Jesus Christ coming, present, part, present participle, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And then he says, this is uh, a deceiver and antichrist. Well, let's go on and look at what he says in the next two verses, because we're going to begin an in-depth study of an important aspect of the study of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of Christology, that is, the study of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he warns, look to yourselves, watch, be careful that we do not lose those things that we worked for. In other words, if you get taken in by deception, if you get taken in by deception, 
then this will destroy your spiritual life and whatever uh, spiritual growth you have you will lose and whatever rewards you might have already earned will be lost. You will not receive a full reward. Then in verse 9 he says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. That indicates the concept of having God is a term for fellowship, as are the, the as is the term abide, which is used twice in verse 9. Now, people in most churches have a terrible time today, are terribly confused by the whole concept of fellowship. Christian fellowship is one of the most abused terms in Christianity today. What most people mean when they talk about Christian fellowship is what we did right before the second hour. We went downstairs and we had some, we got jazzed up on on sugar and caffeine. And we sat around and we talked. Now that is simply Christian social interaction. And there is nothing wrong with Christian social interaction, but if you have two Christians, here we have Christian A, over here we have Christian B, and they are involved in having a great time of social interaction, and they're getting drunk down at some cat house, and then they go down to the casino and gamble away their paychecks, that's not Christian fellowship. Okay, just because two people are Christians does not mean when they have great social interaction, and believe me, you can get a couple of carnal Christians who enjoy a a good six-pack of beer and a cigar and going out and and, uh, raising cane. They can have a fantastic time, and they can talk about it for years to come. I remember some times like that when I was in college with good Christians that I grew up with. We used to go out and have a good time in college. Then I woke up one day and realized I needed to make good grades. And we still talk about that, but we're not uh, we're not doing that anymore. We would uh, just go out and uh, I remember that with an ROTC. We always enjoyed going out on a Friday or Saturday night and getting a keg of beer. I don't want to encourage any young people with the wrong ideas. But that is not Christian fellowship. And these were all guys I grew up with in church, or several of them were. And we'd known each other since we were six or seven years of age. That's not Christian fellowship. See, the difference between Christian social interaction and true Christian fellowship is Christian fellowship has as its center and focus the Word of God. Now, you take those same individuals now, and a couple of them are consistently getting tapes from this ministry, which is one of the biggest ironies in their life when they think that that I am now pastoring them through tapes. But we get together, and we uh, sit around. They'll ask me all kinds of questions about the Word and about doctrine, about this and that. Now, that's Christian fellowship. What's the difference? The difference is that previously you're out of fellowship with God and you're living on the basis of the sin nature. You may both be Christians and having a great time of social interaction, but it's not based on the Word of God and on doctrine where both individuals are in fellowship with God. You see, the issue is not fellowship with man. The issue is fellowship with God. And if you're not in fellowship with God, you can't be in fellowship with other believers. And where John, what John emphasizes in both 1 John and in 2 John here is that fellowship, you can't have fellowship with God unless you have true doctrine. If your doctrine is false, you can't have fellowship with God, especially in the arena of your understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hold your place there in Second John and just just turn back to to First John chapter one, the introduction, the first four verses. John starts off talking about his eyewitness account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse one: That which was from the beginning which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. This life was manifested, we've seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life was with the Father and was manifested to us. So he's talking about the fact that they are eyewitnesses of the incarnation. They are eyewitnesses of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in verse 3 he says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that we may have, that you also may have fellowship with us. In other words, if you do not believe our testimony, our witness about the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can't have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. The point is that without accurate doctrine, Related to the person and work of Jesus Christ, there can be no fellowship with God and there can be no Christian fellowship. Now that doesn't mean that just because you've got an accurate doctrine that you automatically have fellowship either. That is more of a liturgical concept that is divorced from a relationship concept with God. Fellowship is relationship. But you can't have a relationship if there is false doctrine operating or if there is sin operating in the life. So fellowship is based on two things. Accuracy of doctrine at a fundamental level about the person and work of Jesus Christ as well as not having uh, sin in the life or if you do sin, you confess it and instantly you're forgiven and you move forward. Now the issue with these deceivers is that they do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Now this is, may sound like an absurd notion to many of us, but this was a basic problem and false teaching in the early church. So I want to summarize some basic things about Christology this morning as a background to a little more in-depth study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Point number one. We must understand this, just before we get into the first point, we must understand that, that these deceivers are attacking the early church's teaching on who Jesus Christ is in terms of his true humanity and true deity. Point number one, attacks on the doctrine of Christology assault one of four areas. Attacks on the person of Jesus Christ, or on on the doctrine of Christology, assault one of four areas. The assault is always going to come in one of these four areas. First of all, the virgin birth. This is typical of Protestant liberalism that submitted the scriptures to the uh, understanding of human reason. And this occurred in the 19th century. And one of the first things that they did was to attack the whole concept of the virgin birth. This can't fit biologically, they said. We don't understand how this could happen. And if we can't understand it or explain it scientifically, then it couldn't have happened. This is just an early Christian myth. So there was an assault on the virgin birth. Second, there is an assault on the incarnation of Christ. The word incarnation uh, means the to be in flesh. That that uh, that is that Jesus became flesh, became a man, became true humanity, which is the doctrine of the hypostatic union. In other words, this is an assault on the person of Christ, the person of Christ, that He is undiminished deity, united with true humanity in one person forever. So there is an assault on the doctrine of the incarnation or hypostatic union, and that is an assault on the person of Christ. The third area of attack is on the substitutionary atonement, that is the work of Christ on the cross, the substitutionary atonement. And you find assaults on the nature of the atonement going back into the early church and the medieval church, where there were those who taught that Christ died as an example or Christ died in order to demonstrate God's moral uh, government of creation or other ideas of, of uh, the atonement other than the fact that Christ died as a substitute for mankind, what we call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, and that is the work of Christ. So the assault comes either on the virgin birth, second on the incarnation, or hypostatic union, which is an assault on the person of Christ, 
Third, it comes on his work, i.e. the substitutionary atonement. Or fourth, it comes on his resurrection. He didn't really rise from the dead bodily. That was just something his uh, disciples put forth. That was just their, uh, they had a, a, a group hallucination, but there was no actual physical resurrection. So those are the arenas where attacks occur. Now, we, we're not going to look at all of them this morning. We're going to look at uh, the assault on his person. Point number two, there are two basic assaults on his person, two basic attacks on the person of Christ. The first is an attack on his deity or a rejection of his undiminished deity, and the second is an attack on his humanity. Now, this is the person of Christ. We call this, or this has been termed, from the days of the early church, the hypostatic union. This is from the Greek word hypostasis, meaning a substance. And it talks about the union of two natures. First of all, undiminished deity. And second, true, unfallen humanity. And that these were united together in one person. Now we'll come back later and take a more detailed look at the hypostatic union, but I'm just covering this as a general introduction to our study of Christology. Two basic attacks come on the person of Christ. There is either an attack on his deity or an attack on his humanity. Point number three, among Christians in the early and medieval church, and I'm stressing the word Christian, I'm using it um, in in a little bit of a general sense here, not not that I'm saying that everyone was a born-again believer, there wasn't some aberration, but among Christians in general, in the early and medieval church, the deity of Christ was never in doubt. The deity of Christ was never in doubt. Now, they may not have known how to express it correctly. There may have been some questions about its proper articulation and just how it was united with humanity. But generally speaking, there is not a problem with the full deity of Christ until about the time of the Reformation with the beginning of Unitarianism with people like Servetus, who was um, uh, executed for his heresy in Geneva, and the what was the group known as the Socinians? This was a group out of Poland who did who rejected the Trinity and did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. That laid the groundwork for what eventually became known as the Unitarian uh, Church. And it's not until you get into Unitarianism in the 19th century and modern liberalism that you have have so-called Christians rejecting the deity of Christ. In toto. So, among Christians in the early and medieval church, the deity of Christ is never in doubt. They may not have articulated it correctly. They may have, might not have really understood uh, how to express or explain the relationship of his deity to his humanity. But the problem in the early and medieval church wasn't the deity of Christ. This doesn't come along until you get into the Reformation and modern church. Now, that's not to say that there weren't problems with the deity of Christ. You have one group called the Adoptionists, and Arianism was a group, another group of that, of uh, Adoptionists, who saw the deity of Christ as, you see, God as eternal. So we'll draw it up this way. God is eternal. Somewhere along here, you have the creation of the universe and the earth and the angels. Angels, universe, and then earth. In some time before the creation of the angels, in eternity past, Christ is created. So, and he is adopted as a God. We'll put lowercase g there. He's not eternal as the Father is, but he's not a creature on the same order of the angels or mankind, so he is a God in a lowercase sense. This is 
roughly what Jehovah's Witnesses believe in some, some sense. And this was what was called adoptionism, where you see this Christ being adopted as God. And it was taught by a man named Arius, and that became known in the early church as Arianism. Arius taught there was a time when Christ was not. So these were some of the problems, but they still understood Christ as God in some sense. They're not, they're not questioning his deity. They don't have an undiminished deity, but they're not really questioning his deity. They're not just saying, oh, he was just a mere man. Now, point number four, among non-Christians and some sects, the attack was really on the humanity of Christ. Among non-Christian and among some Christian sects, the real attack was on the humanity of Christ. And this was most clearly seen by a group known as the Docetists. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-T-S. And this is taken from the from the Greek verb dokeo, D-O-K-E-O, which has the idea of appearance, that Jesus just appeared to be a man. See, they're attacking his true humanity. He just appeared to be a man. But if God had really become a man, then that would change deity, and if you change deity, it wouldn't be God anymore. That was their argument. So Jesus just had the former, just had the appearance of a man, but he wasn't truly human. He only appeared to be human. And of course, they would say that the Christ spirit uh, left before the crucifixion because obviously God can't be crucified. So they have this, they, they have various, uh, it, it took various forms, but the bottom line was Jesus wasn't fully human. He only appeared to be human. Now, what's the problem with this? What's, what are some of the problems? Person, point number five. A less than fully divine Jesus can't provide salvation. If Jesus isn't fully God, he can't provide salvation. Why? First of all, he would lack perfect righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that the righteousness that is imputed to us at salvation is God's righteousness. And if Jesus Christ is not God, then we can't acquire through imputation the perfect righteousness God demands in order to be saved. So the first problem is that if Jesus isn't fully divine, we don't get divine righteousness and we can't get saved. Second, a fully divine Jesus is infinite. Even though in his humanity he is finite, in his deity he is infinite, and therefore whatever the person of Christ does has infinite value. And so therefore he is able to pay the penalty for all sins for all mankind. The third reason Jesus must be fully divine is that he is the mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5, and a mediator must partake of both sides of the conflict. He must be true human. This is going to be true for both point five and six. He must be truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man, fully human, in order to be a mediator. He must be true humanity and undiminished deity in order to be a true mediator. So Jesus must be fully divine, and if not, he can't provide perfect righteousness. His sacrifice won't have infinite value, and he can't be a mediator. That's all point five. Point six, Jesus must be fully human in order to, and I have seven sub-points. Jesus must be fully human to be a substitute for mankind. In order to substitute for someone, like must substitute for like. He must be truly human in order to be in our place, in order to stand as our substitute. As God, the Son, just in his deity, he could not substitute for man. He had to become true humanity. The penalty had to be paid by a human being. So Jesus had to be human, first of all, to be a substitute. Second, to be a mediator. Same as point five, First Timothy two five, to be a mediator partakes of the qualities of both sides of the conflict. He is both God and man. He is our mediator. 
So Jesus must be human to be a substitute, to be a mediator. Third, to be Israel's Messiah. Israel's Messiah needed to be true humanity. Fourth, Jesus had to be true humanity in order to fulfill Old Testament prophecy that he would be a descendant of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. Genesis 15. He would be in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 and Genesis 15. He had to be a in the tribe of Judah. He had to be a descendant of David. So in order to be a descendant of Abraham, Judah, and David, he had to be true humanity. Fifth, Jesus had to be fully human in order to fulfill the Davidic covenant. In order to be a son of David and heir of the Davidic kingship, he had to be true humanity. Second Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16, and Psalm 89, 20 to 37. That's Second Samuel 7, 8 through 16, and Psalm 89, 20 to 37. Jesus had to, in order to fulfill the office of prophet, see, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. The aspect of the Davidic covenant fulfills the kingship. To fulfill the office of prophet, he had to be a man. A prophet needed to be a human being. And then third, to fulfill the office of priest, to be our high priest or a king priest, First Peter 2, 9. He had to be a priest. A priest represents man before God, and in order to represent man before God, Jesus Christ had to be true humanity. First Peter 2, 9, Hebrews 7, verses 4 and 5, 14 and 28. Hebrews 7, verses 4 and 5, 14 and 28. And then... Seventh, he, in order to pioneer the spiritual life for the church-age believer, a spiritual life based on the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, Jesus had to be true humanity. This is how he handles temptation, not by reliance upon his deity. And we'll go over that next time when we get into the hypostatic union in a little more detail. But in order to handle temptation, he relies upon the Holy Spirit because he is demonstrating the spiritual life for the church age, how believers can handle temptation through the problem-solving devices and relying upon the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. So for these seven reasons, Jesus had to be true humanity. This leads to a conclusion in point number seven. Therefore, the attack on the incarnation that was experienced in the early church, this attack on the incarnation that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, undermines both salvation and sanctification. It under, undercuts salvation because without true humanity, Jesus couldn't be our Savior. And it undercuts the spiritual life because if Jesus Christ and his humanity isn't solving problems through the filling of the Holy Spirit, then there's no basis, there's no precedent, there's no foundation for the spiritual life of the church age. If you do not have a fully human Jesus, then Christianity is completely undercut. So this is why John is making such a crucial issue out of those who are not acknowledging Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Point number eight. The virgin birth, then, is the basis for the incarnation and the humanity of Christ. This is, the virgin birth, then, is the basis for understanding the person of Christ. This is why the virgin birth is often assaulted by liberals. Isaiah 7.14 predicted this and is quoted in Matthew 1.23 by Gabriel when he announces to Mary that she is going to be, become pregnant as a virgin, where he quotes, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And she was kept a virgin, according to Matthew 1.25, until she gave birth to a son. We commented on the doctrine of perpetual virginity of Mary in the first hour. And see, the scripture only says that she remained a virgin until the birth of the Savior, but not afterwards. She had other children, sons and daughters, who were half-brothers in their, and sisters in their humanity uh, to Jesus Christ. Luke 1.27 
confirms this to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And when Gabriel announced to Mary that she would give birth, she says, How can this be since I am a virgin? So the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ comes through a virgin. So God the Father fertilizes the ovum in Mary so that he cuts out the human father. This means that the sin nature, which is passed down through the human father, does not get passed on to Mary's son, Jesus, and he is born without a sin nature. Because he does not have a sin nature, there is no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin, and Jesus himself commits no personal sin so that he is without sin and therefore qualified to go to the cross and die as our substitute. So Mary gives birth to the humanity, the humanity of Jesus Christ, but he is pre-incarnate and his deity is eternal. So there is a miracle that takes place here as the Holy Spirit uh, fertilizes the ovum in Mary so that, and with the result that she gives birth, to the Messiah who is undiminished deity in true humanity. Now point number nine, in his humanity Jesus grew. According to Luke chapter two, verse fifty two. Luke two fifty two. Jesus grew. Luke two fifty two. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and men. This is a crucial verse to demonstrate that in his humanity, Jesus grows and develops in his mentality. He, he grew in wisdom. So he learns just like every other baby learned. He had to learn the Jewish alphabet. Now in his deity, he knew all of this. But it's in his humanity, he still goes through the growth process. He has to learn uh, how to count. He has to learn uh, everything that you learn as a baby, how to walk, how to eat. He has to go through all that process. He increases in wisdom and stature. He, stature relates to physical growth and in favor with God and man. In favor with God is his spiritual growth and in favor with men has to do with his uh, social development in relationship to other human beings. So Jesus grows in his humanity. Because he is truly human, he goes through all the same growth processes that we go through. Point number 10, there is tremendous evidence of his humanity in the Gospels. He suffers physical pain on the cross. He grows weary and physically tired. He thirsts. He was hungry. He had physical pleasure. He rested. He died physically, and he was resurrected physically. All of this is evidence of his genuine and true humanity. So point 10 focuses on evidence of his humanity. Point 11, he has titles that indicate his humanity. He is called the Son of Man. The term Son of is a Hebrew idiom, and it's an it's an adjectival phrase, so that if you are the son of man, you are emphasizing humanity. There's other phrases, such as calling someone a son of a fool means that they're a fool. It doesn't say anything about their father. It means that they're a fool. If they're the son of a murderer, it means they're a murderer. So if you have the phrase son of man, it means that you're emphasizing humanity, just as son of God emphasized his deity. He's called the son of man. He's called the man Christ Jesus. He is called the son of David, indicating his Davidic inheritance. He is called a man of sorrow in Isaiah 53. All of these terms emphasize his true and genuine humanity. And furthermore, we're told that his body was made up of, composed of flesh and blood. His body was composed of flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14 and 1 John 4, 2 and 3, 2 and 3. Hebrews 2, 14, and 1 John 4, 2 and 3. So the scriptures are clear in their testimony that Jesus Christ is not only fully God, but he is also fully man, and this is important for two things, 
the performance of our salvation and also laying the foundation for the spiritual life of the church age and our spiritual growth. This is why John assaults these deceivers is because they will distract his uh, those in this congregation from living the spiritual life and because they are distracted from living the spiritual life they will lose rewards, inheritance, and position in the coming kingdom. That will be a subject we pick up next time as we continue this study on basic Christology and its relationship to uh, future rewards uh, as discussed in verse 8 of Second John with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to gain gain a greater appreciation for who our Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. Not only has he provided everything for our salvation, but he pioneered our unique spiritual life for the church age. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to make a bargain with God, join a church, get baptized, walk an aisle, raise your hand, or do any other uh, activity related to human endeavor. Jesus Christ did everything necessary for your salvation on the cross, and all you have to do is accept that as a free gift. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and pray that you would challenge us with it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.